The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash earnings right now. netsuite.com slash earnings. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. We're going to talk all about the policy prescriptions of the Biden administration. We're not going to hear any more about Operation Warp Speed. They're going to be calling it the COVID response. We're talking right now about 2024 jockeying amongst Republicans. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors? The House has been voting for this stimulus package basically for months. Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. Breaking news. Former President Donald Trump releases a scathing statement against Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. I just landed in my inbox within the last five minutes. Full reaction plus the fallout from a policy perspective of the energy crisis down in Texas as power outages grip the country and thrust energy and infrastructure into the policy threshold. But is there an appetite for more spending after nearly a complete $1.9 trillion stimulus package? We're going to check in with the former Energy Secretary Dan Burlett. Lots to get through. Jam-packed political policy hour that we have tonight. And I'm thrilled that accompanying me along for the ride are Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano and Doug High, former Deputy Chief of Staff for the former House Majority Leader Eric Cantor, and former Communications Director for the RNC. We've got a lot going on down in Texas, but just within the last five minutes, this new statement from former President Donald Trump has caused me to rip up the rundown show script and to lead with tonight's big story. Trump says in this blistering one-page memo, quote, the Republican Party can never again be respected or strong with political leaders like Senator Mitch McConnell at its helm. McConnell's dedication to business as usual status quo policies, together with his lack of political insight, wisdom, skill, and personality, has rapidly driven him from majority leader to minority leader, and it will only get Worse, the president made the remarks in his uh, via a statement from his Save America PAC. Uh, Jeannie, I'll come to you first. I mean, just a remarkable response from the former president after he has now been acquitted from his impeachment and a clear sign that he's going nowhere in terms of going quietly. 
and it's fascinating that this count doesn't come via tweet anymore. We get yeah, it in a different true. way. But you know me, I'm stuck on him calling Mitch a dour, <laughs> sullen, unsmiling <laughs> political hack. Wow. Um, yeah. And, you know, reading through it, it's just stunning because you would think that Donald Trump won re-election. Let's not forget Mitch McConnell actually did win his seat. Donald Trump did not. And so you read this and it's like in another world to me. And, you know, we also at the same time have Steve Bannon apparently in Massachusetts suggesting that Donald Trump should run for the House. And if they win and win big in 2022, he should be elected Speaker of the House to replace Nancy Pelosi. It says, quote, in this statement, it was a complete election disaster in Georgia and certain other swing states. McConnell did nothing and will never do what needs to be done in order to secure a fair and just electoral system into the future. He doesn't have what it takes, never did, and never will, Doug High. Yeah, look, I mean, to, to be blunt about it, I don't really care what Donald Trump says anymore. You know, he's been, a, he's been a disaster for the Republican Party, cost us the House, cost us the Senate, cost us the White House. Um, and I think the less time Republicans spend paying attention to, you know, the king in exile, the better off they are. Great. Donald Trump's having another te temper tantrum. Okay. He goes on to write, I mean, I hear you, Doug, but I mean, I mean, a lot of you look at the base of the party. and I'm going to tell you about a conversation I have with a source over the weekend uh, down in Mar-a-Lago. Uh, the source via phone, I was somewhere I was socially distant in the nation's capital. The, the statement says, quote, likewise, McConnell has no credibility. This is Trump's statement. McConnell has no credibility on China because of his family's substantial Chinese business holdings. He does nothing on this tremendous and economic and military threat uh it, it's i mean this is as blistering it's like a one-page memo against mitch mcconnell i've got sound on uh the impeachment from S mitch mcconnell over the weekend on the senate floor i'm sure you've already all heard it but in uh, we got to splice them back with each other because we get this statement let's take a listen to mitch mcconnell from over the weekend what, what mcconnell had to say about trump here it is there's no question none that president trump is practically and morally responsible for provoking the events of the day. No question about it. Doug, I mean, regardless of opinion, from a pure political strategy perspective, this is a fight for leadership of the Republican Party. When the uh, editorial board of the Wall Street Journal this morning, the Murdoch Wall Street Journal uh, editorial board this morning is saying that uh, Trump should not run for office in 2024, you get this blistering critique uh, in the in the past 15 minutes from Trump's statement over the weekend, McConnell's out there on the Senate floor. This is a fight for control of the Republican Party. Well, maybe, maybe not. You know, the reality is. How is Donald it not, Trump, though? Respectfully, Donald Doug, Trump you and I go way back. But how is it not? Donald Trump likes attention. So if he says something outrageous, he's going to get attention. And he knows that because for five years, even before he was considered a credible candidate, he got all the attention that he wanted. You know, as opposed to any other Republican who was running, who was saying, hey, I'm holding events, I'm doing town halls, but nobody will come cover me. So Trump wants attention. He's going to get it. I'll be honest with you. I'm not reading the statement. My life's going to be OK without reading it. <laughs> I know what he said. He says the same thing all the time. Great. So, okay, so over the weekend, I, I, I checked in with a, an advisor to the former president. And I said, okay, so what's what's the Trump plan? And and Jeannie, the source said to me, I don't understand why the why the media tries to overcomplicate this. I said, well, it's kind of complicated. And so the source says to me back, well, look, 
that you got 10 Republican members of the House who voted to impeach him. He's definitely going to use the super PAC to, to try to primary them. Then there's some upcoming races. You you alluded to what Bannon said, but there's some upcoming upcoming potential recall races where the president, former president could have an opportunity to play Republican kingmaker to test the data to see whether or not people still want to follow him. And then there's this issue of, I mean, right, wrong or indifferent, whether you agree or disagree, the election integrity issue that, you know, he tried and unsuccessfully made the case uh, in, in the recent months. We all remember how he didn't provide evidence for election fraud. But, you know, this source said you look at some of the swing states at the state legislator level, he might look to play a role there, Jeannie. It's fascinating to me because I think as much as, you know, to Doug's point, many Republicans want to distance themselves like Mitch McConnell from Donald Trump. You look at the latest polls and that is going to be very difficult. And that's why we didn't see more than seven vote to convict him. The latest morning consult poll, 59 percent of Republican voters said they want Trump to play a major role in the party going forward. That's up almost 20 percent from what the poll they conducted on January 7th. And again, even though his favorability was low, their latest poll, 81% of Republican respondents give him high marks. That's why you don't see more than seven crossover. And the seven that did, almost all of them are insulated from this sort of electoral challenge that we're hearing people are fearing. I think my big question is not whether Trump is going to play a role in these races going forward, recalls, midterms and the like, but if he's going to be disciplined enough to do this. And I think that's a big question because he also is going to be fighting these lawsuits out of Georgia, potentially New York, maybe D.C. So he's got a lot on his plate. But if he can be disciplined, I think he will have a role at least in two years, if not four years. You know, I, I, I'm looking you mentioned the, the, the one poll that Morning Consult did. I've got the other one in front of me, uh, the Deseret News out in Utah and our friend Boyd Matheson, who, who works out there, who always comes on the show, you know, he sent me this one. Uh, this says the Politico Morning Consult flash poll found uh, that uh, Trump would Trump dwarfs all potential candidates in the survey with 53 percent of Republicans saying they would vote for him. Uh, in second place is Pence, 12 percent. I, I, I don't know. I, I think that this is at the start of an election cycle, having you know covered multiple cycles now. This is what happens. It's a fight for control of the Republican Party. A lot can happen, obviously, between now and the Iowa caucuses. But, you know, we're years out. But it, it, in terms of what the what the Republican voters are saying, it, you know, he's still of influence. Doug, what's the difference between caring about what Donald Trump, the individual, does versus where Trumpism politics and policy, Trumpism policies goes? Well, one, Trumpism doesn't, doesn't include policies. It's all about one person. But this, this predates Doug, Donald Trump. I feel like you're you know, writing the McConnell statement Sharon rebuttal. Sharon Engels, <laughs> the Christine O'Donnells, the Todd Akins, the Richard Murdochs, those are four Senate seats Republicans lost because they embraced the crazy. And so they were warned, right? And yes, anything can happen in a long time. You know, if you go back to 2015, Republicans had the best bench to run for president they've probably had in a generation. And the person who won it wasn't on the bench and wasn't being polled about. Um, so I take things with three years at polling for three years out as a big grain of salt. But this was a problem before Donald Trump. It'll be a problem after Donald Trump. To me, he's much of a symptom as he is a cause. 
Jeannie, just come in here quickly about the, the policies and the reworking of conservatism as it relates to uh, energy and infrastructure, for example. I mean, the, the old guard uh, Republican establishment, as we once saw, covered it, is gone. Does someone inherit that? Someone like a, a DeSantis down in Florida. Do you know what I'm trying to get at? It's true. And we've seen DeSantis rise. I mean, we see reports today because of his handling of the COVID epidemic. Mm -hmm. And I think we are seeing younger, more, uh, you know, governors and others on the Republican side who are rising to the top. And I think it's very possible. I don't know that the future of somebody like Nikki Haley, but I do think the question of where Republican policies go is one that we have seen battled since at least 08, if not, in my view, when we saw, you know, sort of post George Bush Sr., in fact. So it's a battle really over who they want to be and everything from foreign policy to domestic policy. And, you know, folks, I know I'm going to get criticized, but Clinton and Sanders went at it after things went down. So here we are. Much more coming up next. We're going to talk policy down in Texas. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. We begin tonight, or we, we continue tonight with the big story following that fallout uh, from former President Donald Trump versus Mitch McConnell. Uh, the energy crisis that is gripping the country, and I'm diving into my Bloomberg terminal, Brian K. Sullivan and Noreen Malik report, the energy crisis crippling the U.S. showed few signs of abating Tuesday as blackouts left almost 5 million customers without electricity, while refineries and oil wells were shut during unprecedented freezing weather to prevent the collapse of their network suppliers from north dakota to texas are instituting rolling power cuts for the second consecutive day earlier today i spoke with a senior staffer to congresswoman fletcher of the greater houston area and i said you know we were trying to get cut the congresswoman uh, to call into our program and, and the source said to me look she's without power you know i mean there's nowhere to charge the phone they're saving power i mean it is a complete complete issue down in uh in the lone star state check this spot power prices in texas hit the nine thousand dollar per megawatt hour cap 
for a fourth straight day. And the deep freeze is forecast to remain at least, at least until Wednesday. Uh, we've got sounds on this energy crisis, which has crippled power grids across the United States and showed few signs of abating as blackouts left almost 5 million customers, again, 5 million people, Americans without electricity during this unprecedented cold weather. Let's take a listen to the Bloomberg guests and how they responded to the implications for the U.S. energy production. What is our priority for uh, for keeping the lights on and the heat on? We really do need to have a very uh, broad mix of power generating sources. We need to make sure that we are smart enough to make those coexist and along, alongside one another, but while still keeping uh, a focus on improving our environment. This is a timely reminder for a wake up call, really, and saying that, yeah, we absolutely need fossil fuel yeah. in the mix. It's about how we get it greener. Let's bring into the conversation Jeannie Shanzano and Doug High. I mean, Doug, coming up, we're going to talk to uh, the former energy secretary in the Trump administration, Dan Brulette. Uh, you know, what what should Republicans be discussing now in an era of an energy crisis because of this powerful cold spell in Texas? Looks like we lost Doug. So I'm, oh, Doug, you there. Doug, yeah. go ahead. We got you loud and clear. Uh, no worries. Look, it's, a, it's an opportunity for them to actually talk about ideas and solutions, which for four years they weren't able to do so. I mean, this is this is part of why Mitch McConnell wants to turn the page on Donald Trump and put him in, in the rearview mirror. For four years, the term infrastructure week was a joke. And you know, I, my guess is that if you ask the president, the former president, about infrastructure, he'd talk to you about bridges and tunnels and roads. He wouldn't talk to you about our energy grid, which needs to be modernized, which is you know, failing right now in Texas for a lot of reasons, maintenance being one of them. Republicans should be able to talk about solutions for this, and they haven't been able to for four years. Uh, Jeannie, you know, in, in terms of the infrastructure, that's a great point, Doug. In terms of the infrastructure spending, I mean, do you think Democrats are no doubt going to say that this is evidence that we need to, to improve the nation's infrastructure? But centrist Democrats, including four down in Texas, a couple of weeks ago, wrote to the Biden administration and said, President Biden, please rescind some of those executive orders that you did on energy because we're getting pummeled uh, down here in the Lone Star State. Republicans are, are going to make the case that, hey, now is not the time for this for these uh, Green New Deal type of policies. It is something that I think we're I'm curious to see how the president and the administration respond. I mean, I agree they want to act on infrastructure and they want infrastructure, to Doug's point, to be more than just bridges and tunnels. They want to also, however, do a number of other things, all of which bear enormous cost. And so one of my big questions is how are you going to afford a big infrastructure bill? And we do need a big infrastructure bill in addition to a 1.9 trillion COVID relief bill. And so that's one big question. Another big question is, we don't even have an energy secretary in place yet. As the last I've seen, Jennifer Granholm's nomination has still not made it to the floor and no floor vote, as least as I know yet, is scheduled. Now, obviously they're out. So this pushes this all back at, the at a time when you see a state like Texas, colder than Alaska, with rotating power outages by its power grid operator because they have no other way to reduce the demand on electricity. And so that raises a whole host of questions as to how the United States can move forward if something as basic as our power grid can be brought down by a cold snap. 
Five million people. I mean, you, you hear some of the stories that have been, and the news reports that have been coming up. I mean, and and just to to double down on this, the Texas governor's office. I'm reading from the terminal. The Texas governor's office has asked that the Freeport LNG export terminal curtail operations in accordance with the state's disaster declaration amid a polar blast. This the company said in a regulatory follow. Fil- Filing to minimize gas and power consumption, Freeport will reduce gas feed and shut down liquefaction units two and three, which will result in unplanned flaring, the company said. So the energy uh, situation in Texas and all throughout the country, for that matter, really now a big story. Much more coming up next. We talk to the former energy secretary, Dan Burlett. This is Kevin Cerilli. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1, to New York, Bloomberg 11.30, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli. I'm Kevin Cirilli, coming up my exclusive conversation with former Energy Secretary Dan Blulette. As energy's in focus, down in Texas, uh, I'm joined by Doug High as well as uh, as well as uh, Jeannie Shazeno. Uh, Doug is the former communications director to the RNC, and Jeannie is, of course, our Bloomberg politics uh, contributor. So coming up, we're going to talk to former Energy Secretary Dan Burlett uh, in the next block. But I, I want to talk about the other major driving force here. And we alluded to it, but it's the economic stimulus. And now with this crisis down in Texas and the energy and infrastructure at the forefront, it we there has still not passed the $1.9 trillion stimulus uh, package. I've got sound on this from White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, uh, who uh, gave a briefing earlier today. Take a listen to what she said. The president has not shifting gears. He has been focused every single day, uh, even as others have not, which is understandable, on engaging with partners, stakeholders, people who agree with him, people who don't agree with him, on getting this package through. Jeannie Shazeno, I, I mean, I, I'm trying to figure out, once they get this through, is, is infrastructure really where they want to spend their political capital next? Obviously, COVID is certainly first, and I think it may not be infrastructure. I think we see a real focus on immigration, actually. That has become an enormous problem just in the last few weeks. Obviously, it was a problem before. So I think there may be a fight, if you will, between where to put these these limited resources, infrastructure or immigration, And, of course, we have to have the political will to do these things. And we heard the president over the weekend also add into the mixed common sense gun reform, which then I have some questions about how Jen Psaki addressed that at the press conference today. So, you know, those things all at the forefront of this massive agenda he campaigned on, and they're going to have to pick and choose in order to get these through. I'm not sure where they go next, but I do think immigration is vying for infrastructure at this point. Doug, do you agree with that? 
that, do you think immigration could lose its uh, lose its uh, cloud on the to do list to immigration? Well, yeah, yes, um, because it's become such an emerging crisis, and and if Texas is able to, you know, recover in the next few days to where we focus on how we prevent away, then maybe it gets back to where infrastructure um, is number one. But immigration is something that politically could be very vulnerable for Biden. And if he's not seen as addressing it head on, we know Republicans are, are going to be very uh, aggressive on this issue. And, and so Biden may want to try and tackle something on this this early. Well, and, and that's a great point, because from your perspective, when you talk to Republicans all across the country, not just Republicans in, in the House as well as in the Senate, Doug, is, are, is there an appetite after they maybe support a handful of them might support the stimulus? Is there an appetite for more government spending on, on infrastructure after a $1.9 trillion on top of the, the last stimulus? Well, that's going to be a problem, especially you know for a lot of Republicans who are, are going to pay that we haven't spent everything from the last stimulus yet. And that seems to be, you know, one, one of the challenges that we always have when we, when we have a, a crisis where we spend, we, we allocate and appropriate stimulus money, but before it all gets spent, we've got to do more. And, and so um, it may be tough to get some Republican buy-in on that just for that reason. Jeannie, I think this is fascinating in terms of, how Republicans decide based upon where their local politics are for how much money they are willing to spend. It is. And, and, you know, as we think about what's going on in Texas and we talk about an issue like immigration and which wins out infrastructure or immigration, let's not forget that the cold in Texas has been hitting migrants coming across the border harder than almost any of them. Many of them have been forced to be intense as they await entry into the country. Now we've seen that policy adjusting and creating some confusion, hence some of the crisis we're seeing. But the cold is going to make it more and more important that the Biden administration address this for humanitarian reasons. And to your point, how Democrats decide to move forward, they're not going to be able to move forward on these things by themselves as much as they may like to. They're going to have to have buy-in from Republicans. And that's where I think they're probably going to have to address a mounting crisis on immigration prior to infrastructure, even though people across both parties would love to address both. All of these things cost money that after $1.9 trillion or whatever this ends up being, we may not have a great deal to spare. Well, and, and in terms of the infrastructure, it, I, I don't see how that becomes more popular. Or maybe there's even a push to, to add funding to this. Doug, is that even possible? Could they, could they say they want to add funds to, to protect power grids, for example, in this new stimulus bill? I think that's very hard to do in a yeah. short period of time especially given how high the price tag is already. You know, $1.9 trillion is a massive bill. So to try and tack anything additional onto that, uh, you know, at that point you're almost talking like an omnibus appropriations bill. Go ahead, Jeannie. Oh, yeah, and I, I just wanted to add to that that, of course, you see uh, this. what's going on is um, – going to make it very hard because what have Republicans and even some moderate Democrats been saying? The COVID relief should focus on COVID relief, not adding anything else to it. So the idea that you would tie that into infrastructure or the environment or a $15 minimum wage, that's what makes it unpalatable to some moderate Democrats and many Republicans. And of course, Biden cannot afford to lose if they use this 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 means of reconciliation. One Democrat, and that's where Kristen Sinema and others are potentially problematic on the $15 minimum wage. You know, and I look at this in the Bloomberg terminal um, and Mike Shepard just are 
one of our editors in the uh, uh, White House team down here in the Washington Bureau, he tweeted out the story. The energy crisis crippling power grids across the U.S. showed no signs of abating on Tuesday morning as blackouts left almost 5 million customers without electricity during unprecedented cold weather. To prevent the collapse of their network, suppliers from North Dakota to Texas are having to institute rolling power cuts for the second consecutive day to limit demand, and the shortages are expected to continue throughout uh, and last until tomorrow. I'm Kevin Cirilli. Dan Burlett's up next. Don't miss it. This is Bloomberg. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. My name is Kevin Cirilli, and I am the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio, along with Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano. We've been talking about the big story, 5 million Americans without power in the Lone Star State of Texas. So let's head now to an exclusive conversation with none other than the former Energy Secretary, Dan Burlett. Mr. Secretary, thanks for joining us, and it's great to catch up with you again, unfortunately, given the, the news story, uh, as it may be. Just put on your, your professorial cap, if you will, and just explain to our audience how much energy Texas provides, not just to the United States, but also to Mexico. Well, Kevin, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me today. I look forward to our conversation. It, it cannot be overstated how important Texas is to the energy world, uh, as you point out, not only here in the United States, but also to Mexico as well as the rest of the world. Uh, you know, we import a fair amount of oil from Mexico, and it's refined in, in Texas. And those refineries, uh, as I understand it today, have been shut in to some degree, and that's creating some havoc in the gasoline pricing across the country, but uh, it cannot be overstated how important Texas is to the energy world. And I think as we look at this particular event, yes, it's an, an extraordinary event in terms of the temperature. It's a tragic event in that people have lost their lives uh, because they don't have access to electricity and to heat in some cases. And uh, it's important that we take a look at, you know, what can we do to make the energy infrastructure even stronger to combat these types of events? You know, Kevin, back in the day, there was a point in time in America's history where we built energy infrastructure, the utility system in particular, to be as strong as it needed to be to accommodate everyone in America. Power and electricity was available when the customer wanted it, whenever they wanted it. And right now, what we're doing is we're, we're, we're balancing uh, the needs of renewable energy versus what is known as baseload electricity, 
And that power is not always there when the customer wants it. And that's sort of what we're seeing here in Texas. So, so what can be done? I mean, to, to be blunt, what can be done? What should be done? I mean, in Washington, we've been talking about infrastructure. Uh, you know this back in even in the previous administration. They're talking about it again now. What needs to be done? Well, we need to look at baseload power a little differently than I think some in Washington would want to look at it. You know, baseload power comes from natural gas, from nuclear power, and in some cases, coal. And at least two of those have been off limits for many in Washington. And it's time for us to address that. It's very important that we do address it. The market distortions today have made nuclear power uneconomic. It's taken coal completely out of the marketplace for all intents and purposes. And I think the next target for some of these uh, policymakers in Washington is to take natural gas off the table as well. And if we do that, then we've taken away our ability to produce electricity 24-7. Because as we all know, solar power is not yet capable of doing that, and neither is wind power because we don't have battery storage technologies that would allow for that. There were four centrist Democrats who sent a letter to President Biden from the Texas delegation just a couple of weeks ago and essentially said they they wanted uh, President Biden to rescind some of the executive orders that he did uh, that progressives really liked. Uh, You know this. The chairman of the Energy Committee this Congress is Senator Joe Manchin. He is a Democrat from West Virginia, a a state where coal is an incredible economic engine uh, to a state where Trump carried by 20 percentage points. Are you confident that there's enough centrists from in, in the Democratic Party who are who agree with you on the policies with regards to baseload power? Uh, or do you think that they're that the math is not on your side this Congress? No, I think I think uh, I think there are some Democrats in Congress who understand clearly the importance of baseload electricity in the country. You have folks like Senator Tester out in Montana. You have folks out in, in New Mexico who are feeling the brunt of this uh, climate push and the brunt of this uh, weather event in uh, out in West Texas as well with the shut-in of these oil wells. And, frankly, the brunt of some of the policies that have been announced already by the Biden administration. The idea that we're not going to produce oil and gas on federal land, that, that's a serious blow to the economy of New Mexico. So I would keep an eye on folks like Senator Heinrich and others in the U.S. Senate. And I think if you if you approach the right energy policy, you're going to draw some of those centrist, moderate Democrats over uh, to a policy that's going to be very supportive of energy production here in the United States. Mr. Secretary, it's Jeannie Zeno in New York, and it's such a pleasure to talk to you. I hi, wanted, Jeannie. Hi. I wanted to just ask you about the situation in Texas and across the country, I would say. Is it your understanding that this is linked to global warming to the extent that Texas, ERCOT there, they plan for winter to be much warmer. So when global warning, warming elicits this sort of wilder weather that's unpredicted and, and unanticipated, that that's why it stretches these grids to their limits. And if that's the case, and, and it seems to be that's what we're hearing, what can the United States do about that, if anything? Well, you know, it's a good question. Look, I, you know, I, I don't know if this is connected to climate change. I, when I look back at the records, there were a bunch of records that were set back around the turn of the century, the ni- early 1900s, really a couple degrees off of those records. So you have to ask yourself, you know, is it really is it is it carbon emissions or is it climate change? It could very well be. I don't know the answer to the question. You know, but what we're looking at today is a lack of infrastructure not only in Texas, but across the country, we have to move natural gas to these baseload facilities so that they can provide electricity 24-7. And I think what we saw, or at least what we we need to investigate in Texas, 
is whether or not when the windmill shut down in West Texas, did that prevent uh, electricity from reaching the compressors in the pipeline that would have uh, prevented gas from reaching these natural gas utilities? If that's the case, then we have to we have to honestly assess that. If it's not the case, then by all means, you know, let's continue to produce this renewable energy. It's very important that we do for the purposes of carbon emissions reductions. But uh, we have to ask those questions of ourselves and really take a close look at it. Do you think Republicans who are skittish about spending more money should buy into spending more money, even after this $1.9 trillion stimulus goes through, to, to fork up the change for infrastructure? Yeah, I, I think we should. I, I don't know if it's $1.9 trillion or if it's or if it's something less than that. I, I really don't know. But, but I do think it's important that we look at the infrastructure across the country. It would be very nice for us to be able to move electricity, for instance, from New York to L.A. or L.A. to New York, uh, given the way the sun moves in the United States and the way the peak loads move across the country. If we could vary the way we produce electricity and move it you know, from point A to point B much more uh, easily than we do today, I think that's a good thing for all Americans. The Dan same Berle- thing with natural gas pipelines. Mm-hmm. Dan Berlet's with us. He's the former uh, uh, Secretary of Energy in the previous administration. You know, you and I used to talk about this back pre-pandemic when we had uh, in the break room here at the uh, Bloomberg uh, Washington Bureau, where I come in sure, <laughs> virtually. Sure. But we used to talk about this. I mean, I come from a family. I've got a sister who works in a refinery. And, you know, my dad used to work in refineries a lot. Um, does it bother you, uh, to, to Jeannie's point, this notion that the way it's been framed, I mean, I don't want to blame anyone for why it's been framed this way, but for whatever reason, it's been it's been framed that if you work or are affiliated with the energy sector, that means you can't believe in climate change. I mean, do, is there a way for the private sector to to raise the issue that maybe they could offer some solutions and innovate the, the way to address climate change in, in the world? But I think they are, and that's that's really the missing That story part never here. gets told, yeah. I know. I just don't see it. I mean, it, it, you know, it doesn't get covered the way I think it should. This mm-hmm. is one of the most innovative inter- industries in the world. And if we are to see things like carbon capture and sequestration or direct air capture really come to the marketplace, it's going to be from the energy industry. Uh, it's not going to be the average homeowner who is going to have the resources to do that. And they won't be able to do it on the scale in which we need it to do if we want to really reduce carbon emissions in the country. So this industry has invested a lot of money, a lot of time, and a lot of sweat, blood, and tears on these types of technologies. And they are the ones bringing it to the marketplace. And I think they deserve credit for it. All right. We're going to have to leave it there. Dan Brulette, he is the former energy secretary. Thank you so much, uh, Secretary, for for coming in. And I hope you've been well uh, and we'll catch up with you soon. and, and Jeannie, I mean, right there, you hear it. I mean, it's it's a really fascinating issue where the industry, the energy sector, has really struggled with telling that story. They have, and he makes such a good point that it is one of the most innovative industries in the world. There's so much that can be done in terms of incentivizing the industry, I think, with tax credits and other ways to move forward because it is incredibly innovative. And I'm curious to see what happens next and how the Biden administration yeah. and Congress incentivize. It's, it's fascinating. All right, February is Black History Month, and Bloomberg Radio is celebrating pivotal moments in U.S. black history each day. Here with today's installment is Bloomberg's Renita Young.
On this day in black history in 1951, the New York City Council passes a bill prohibiting discrimination against African-Americans in city-assisted housing. The bill was mainly directed at the Stuyvesant Town Housing Project, at the time a public-private partnership project. Managers of that development prohibited black tenants who had been active in the campaign to stop racial discrimination. Lawsuits were filed claiming that the project was public or semi-public and thus violated anti-discrimination laws for New York City public housing, which were rarely enforced. One month later, the Brown-Isaacs bill became law in New York City. That's Today in Black History. I'm Renita Young, Bloomberg Radio. All right, that does it for me. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio, along with Jeannie Shanzino, who is our Bloomberg politics contributor. This is Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world.